Amen. Y'all can be seated. Thanks for reading. I'm excited to be here uh, with you guys tonight. Um, for those of you who are just dropping in, maybe join us for the first time. I'm not Brian Anderson, um, although sometimes I wish I were. Um, not everyone can be that good looking, though. So, but uh, my name's Clint Wilson. I'm the worship leader here. And uh, like I said, Pastor Brian is out of town. And so I'm just filling in tonight. And I feel a little weird standing up here uh, before you uh, without my guitar in my hand. I feel uh, a little naked, so I'm going to hold this water bottle um, like our youth pastor does. Um, just kidding, that's a joke. Um, that is just a backup in case I choke. Um, so yeah, so feel a little awkward, um, and so pardon any kind of awkward Ricky Bobby, I don't know what to do with my hands moments. Um, just forgive me for remember that I am a musician. Um, so, uh, for the past month or so, we've been looking at uh, theology proper. Uh, theology, theology proper is simply the study of God himself, who he has revealed himself to be. And so we titled the series, who, who is God? I think it's a basic question that we should be able to answer. And it's one of those things we assume we know the answer to until someone asks us, right? You know those kind of questions? Uh, we think we know the answer to who is God, and someone asks us, we start to stumble and search around uh, for words. We throw out churchy cliches, um, but we struggle to find anything that is objective, anything substantive um, to say. And that is why it's important that we study theology. And it's not simply important that we study theology, but what we believe is incredibly important. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to read that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So tonight we're here to enhance and correct our mental image of God. We're here to work on what is most important. And if Tozer is correct, and I believe he is, we'd better pay attention to God's self-revelation. That is the Bible. And we should pray for the Holy Spirit's help. So let's do that now. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark uh, to die in our sin. God, but you have in grace revealed yourself to us. And you have thought so much of us to write it down so that we wouldn't forget. God, forgive us where we long for other sources of revelation that are faulty and fabled. God, but may we trust in your written word. And Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would show us great things about your nature and who you are. And most of all, that we would see Christ as beautiful, and that we cling to him, and that we would worship at his feet. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so tonight we'll be looking at the first of God's incommunicable 
attributes. So who remembers the distinction between communicable and incommunicable attributes? Okay, so the communicable attributes of God are those attributes which we most share with God, things that we, uh, he has given to us. And those incommunicable attributes are those that we least share with God. And that will be what we're looking at tonight. And if you're uh, not up to date with this series, uh, there's been three prior sessions um, you can listen back to all of them on our uh, church sermon podcast. So just by a show of hands, who has listened to the church sermon podcast by chance? Okay, it's pretty good, actually, for what I was thinking. Um, you can get through that. You can get to that through iTunes um, or uh, your favorite uh, sermon, sorry, your favorite podcast catcher app on your phone, or simply by going to our website and clicking messages. You can see that um, there. So um, you can check back up on that and just be up to date. So if Try not to throw out any terminology that you wouldn't understand from prior weeks if you missed it, but just in case, and it's always good to, to stay up to date with it. So looking at uh, our lesson tonight, someone call out a one-word description of the human existence. If you had to summarize all of the human existence in one word, what's some words that you would use? Sinful. Broken, prideful, sinful. All right, since you're not, I'm, not, I'm not catching what I'm throwing out there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it out there. Uh, I think uh, prideful does go into it, but what I'm thinking is dependence. We are all dependent on other people and other things for survival. Not just us, but really all of living creation is dependent we need food, we need shelter, clothing, companionship, etc. And this foundational, this is a foundational difference between us and God. Thus, the incommunicable part of this is that we are dependent. God is independent. The difference is the difference between being as God is and becoming as we are. God is the one who has the power of being within himself. He's perfectly and completely independent. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And there are many aspects of God that move me to wonder. Sometimes you sit back and think about God and and all that it is to be God, and you just simply just wonder and marvel. Um, But this attribute of God is near the top of the list. And, And so my goal tonight is for you to walk away just simply saying, wow. You may be thinking to yourself that theology isn't applicable. Why study theology? It doesn't help me live my life. And I think many of us who who have grown up in churches and we're so used to heavy applicational emphasis from Bible studies that we simply miss the pleasure of enjoying God. We, We simply just cannot wait for someone to tell us what to do. When many times the application portion of biblical text is simply to marvel. So that's what we're going to try to do tonight. We're going to marvel at the glory of God. And that word glory is a word we throw around a lot, but it simply means the outshining of God's infinite perfections. So I'm going to focus on one perfection tonight and hope that that uh, stuns us. So I'm not going to give you a list of applications. I'm just going to set before you a picture of who God is and pray that he blows us away. And may we leave here singing, How Great Thou Art. So here we go, independence. 
Wayne Grudem defines it this way. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. I love the way Grudem frames these doctrines in his systematic theology. He protects us from our natural desire uh, to go to extremes. Martin Luther once said that the human nature is like a drunkard trying to ride a horse. He says he gets on from the right side. I'm sorry, he gets on and then falls off to the right side. Then he gets up and resolves not to make that same mistake again. So he remounts, careful not to fall off on the right. And then he promptly falls off on the left. He says that is our nature. And I think we're so right. I'm definitely one who is prone to overcorrection. Um, And so Grudem helps us avoid this by presenting the attributes of God and then gives us a balancing statement. So let's look at that definition of God's independence again. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. So we're going to break this definition into the two halves tonight. Uh, And so we're going to start with the first half. That God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. So this doctrine of God's independence has been traditionally referred to as God's aseity. That word aseity comes from the Latin a meaning from and se meaning self. So when we put that together, literally, we've got from self. So we're going to be looking at God's from selfness, his self-existence, his independence. And this is one of the most foundational concepts when it comes to understanding who God is. And honestly, it's foundational to a biblical worldview. So let's go to our first biblical text for tonight. It's on page one. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible begins with this presupposition. It begins with the idea that the creator of all things necessarily existed from before creation and apart from the creation. Therefore, we can deduce that his existence is qualitatively different than that which he created because he created it. So it's not a difference in degree of difference between the creature and the creator, but of a whole different category. And Grudem uh, sums it up beautifully this way. He says, the difference between the creature and the creator is an immensely vast difference. For God exists in a fundamentally different order of being. It is not just that we exist and God has always existed. It is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way. The difference between God's being and ours is more than the difference between the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake, more than the difference between the universe and the room we're sitting in. God's being is qualitatively different. No limitation or imperfection in creation should be projected onto our thought of God. How much do we do that? Project our own limitations onto God. He is creator. All else is creaturely. All else can pass away in an instant. He necessarily exists forever. So that is the great presupposition of the Bible, that the creator necessarily exists apart from creation. And even the Greek philosopher Parmenides saw the logical necessity for a pre-existent source of being. 
when he famously says, whatever is, is. And he wasn't stuttering. He was saying, whatever is, is. He saw that. So now turn with me to Acts uh, 17. And we'll see Paul in the hotbed of Greek philosophical thought uh, making this same argument. Acts chapter 17. So I'm going to set the scene for you uh, while you turn. So Paul arrives into Athens, Greece. And verse 16 says that when he was waiting there in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He was in Athens, Greece. He could have taken a tour through the Parthenon. He could have walked around and marveled at the incredible architecture and philosophical debate that was going on in the city. Yet his spirit was provoked because he saw the city was overtaken with idols. His heart was broken for these people. So then he goes to reason, the Bible says. He reasons with the people in the synagogues, and then he makes his way to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. And in the company of these intellectual elites, he affirms the nature of the true God. So up there on the screen... Uh, that's the Acropolis, seen from Mars Hill. And so this sits directly to the east of Mars Hill. So as we read this scripture, imagine Paul standing there before these uh, philosophers and theologians, and he points his hand over here at the Acropolis, which is home to extravagant temples, to numbers and numbers of gods and goddesses. He waves his hands over this way, and he says these words, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, as I passed alone and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul is pointing out the fact that the true creator God is utterly different than everything else. That the true God is beyond comparison with the false God of the Athenians. He doesn't live in temples. He isn't served by sacrifices because he is perfectly satisfied in his own fullness. And God consistently reminds us of this uh, throughout Scripture. Job 41.11, he says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50.10-12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So God doesn't need us. All is his. He created all. And if he can exist apart from what he created, he doesn't need what he created. So, but doesn't God, in a sense, need his creation? Like, wouldn't he be lonely without us? This is a common objection to God's complete independence. The objector would say that God created humans because he was lonely And more frequently, he wanted someone to love, is how it's phrased. And this objection really rises out of a faulty understanding of the nature of God on the most basic level. Remember, God is triune. 
God is three in one. God is a community of equal persons, each sharing in love and glory and honor for one another. God has always been completely satisfied. There is no deficiency in God at all. And Jesus himself gives us insight into this relationship um, in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Um, if, you, if you haven't circled John 17 in your Bibles, just go ahead and do that now. Um, it's one of the most powerful passages in the Bible for understanding how much God loves you as a Christian. It's just unfathomable. And here we see examples of that. Um, in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Then later in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, here it is, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here we see love between uh, the members of the Godhead uh, existing before creation. And so now, if I just kind of blew something up in your mind, um, you're probably thinking, well, if God did not create us because he was lonely, why, why did he? And we don't have time, and I'm definitely not skillful enough to be able to answer that question. But I'll simply say this. He created out of an overflow of his fullness, like a fountain, not in an attempt to fill a void. And for insight onto this that you can spend uh, years looking at, I recommend God's Passion for His Glory by John Piper. It's a book. And in the back of that book, he includes a copy of John, Jonathan Edwards' essay, uh, The End for Which God Created the World. If you don't get the book for anything else, just get it for the, the back part of Jonathan Edwards. Um, the way he breaks it up where it's easy to read is it, nice. Um, and you can download it for free at desiringgod.com uh, where he, he explores this idea of God being the, the fountain of all things. It's great. Um, so I think we've at least established a little bit on an introductory level, at least, that God is indeed independent from all creation. So now let's, let's look at that balancing statement, right? That, that part that keeps us from making wrong assumptions because of this truth. So I think the easy overcorrection for us to make is when we realize that God is completely independent, God does not need us, we can say, well, that means we're meaningless. We don't have purpose. What's the point? Um, and so uh, this statement is here to guard us against that. And we are meaningful because we are meaningful to him. We are valuable because God determined to give us value. We rightly defend the sanctity of human life against the atrocities of abortion and murder. And, and by standing up for that truth, we, we say that people are valuable because they are made in the image of God, right? We say that human life is intrinsically valuable. Though well-meaning, I think that language intrinsically valuable is incorrect. Our value doesn't come from within ourselves. It's not intrinsic. Human life is extrinsic. It's extrinsically valuable. We are valuable because we are God's. Our value comes from his value that he has given us. We don't add value or give value to God. He gives value to us. So therefore, we should say, if we wanted to be particular, 
that human life is extrinsically valuable. And when people look at you like you're from another planet, then you can talk about how valuable God is and we're made in his image. And we're not just valuable generally, right? We're valuable to him, which is mind-blowing, particularly those who he has set his covenantal redemptive love upon in Christ. We were created to glorify him and to bring him joy. In Isaiah 43, 7, God speaks to his people as this. says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Although God did not have to create us, he chose to freely, totally free choice to create us. And then he decided that he would create us to glorify him. And for an example of that, we see that in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. You can write that down in Revelation 4, 11. And knowing that purposeful intention gives us meaning and purpose in our lives. And it's also true that we can bring real joy and delight to God. That's another mind-blowing statement, that we can bring joy to the fountain of all joys. Here's what the Lord says about us in Isaiah 62. Starting in verse 3. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now this is astounding. What we see about God's relation to us here in chapter 62 of Isaiah. Note the two metaphors that he uses here. He uses the metaphor of a crown and the metaphor of a wedding. Okay? On the screen you see the imperial state crown of the Queen of England. It's valued at close to $30 million in jewels alone. Just the rocks, not all the rest of the stuff, not the historical and cultural value and significance, just the rocks, $30 million. Yes, that big silver thing in the bottom is one diamond. Imagine the way she looks at that thing and treats that thing. Most of the time it sits in a vault, but ignore that part of this metaphor. Um, she prizes this. It's got historical uh, references to her family. It's been passed down through her family for centuries. It's beautiful. It's got the priceless uh, treasures of the whole world are on that thing. And the same way God looks at us in that way. He sees us as a priceless treasure. God looks at his people as his prized possession. The second metaphor is the bridegroom relationship. So your wedding is one of the most exciting days and times of your life. That whole little time frame around that, from engagement to the, to the, the months after uh, the marriage. It's just a, a special time. And the joy-fueled love is just tangible wherever you go. I've been on stage for many a weddings as a musician and one thing that always happens is as the bride is walking down the aisle, everyone stands and looks and watches the bride. But what always happens is people look back. 
because they want to see the groom's face. All across the room, you'll see people looking back at the groom, trying to see uh, how, how he is responding and how he is responding to his bride. And he, uh, sometimes the, the groom, right, he's just beaming with joy. Sometimes he's crying. But what we're looking for is to see the delight on his face. We want to see that joy because he loves that woman. He rejoices in who she is. And that is how God looks at us, as his delight, as his joy, and as his bride. So this whole distinction between God being independent and we can still bring him joy, it really raises some apparent contradictions. You know, questions like, how does this ah say one, the one who is from himself, the one who is completely independent, how does he meet with the dependent like us? Especially when we talk about sin and how that separates things. How does the transcendent become imminent? How does the holy rejoice in the unholy? The answer is Christ. The second member of the Trinity. The eternal Son of God. When creation rebelled in search of our own independence, we separated ourselves from the only source of life. We severed our connection to the one who has the power of being in himself. And as a result, death reigned. You see, we aren't independent. We are desperately needy. And we committed suicide with our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. May this gospel of Jesus Christ wreck our hearts. May we worship at the feet of the needless one who chose to become needy for our salvation, that we may be reconciled to the source of life. So this month, as we celebrate Advent, this is what it's all about. It's all about the incarnation, longing for this reconciliation. The incarnation that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, my son's namesake, he said it beautifully, infinite and infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Church, after, after hearing this, you should no longer question your value in the light of God's independence. For Zephaniah prophesies the work of the Messiah. He says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. I'm going to close with this commentary from Reggie Kidd. If it is only when we understand Christ's presence in the church as being the fulfillment of God's promise in Zephaniah 3.17 to quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing that a crucial aspect of our salvation comes into perspective. Jesus didn't coldly settle accounts for us. He doesn't bark us into improving ourselves. He unites us to himself in the glorious communion that he has enjoyed for eternity with his heavenly father. He resides within us to heal the broken places and reflesh our cauterized hearts. He sings us in to a new mode of existence. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We're only worthy to come to you tonight and to gather in your name because you have restored us to the source of all life that is in yourself. It's who you are. You said that I am who I am. God, we thank you for your mercy. And we pray that we could trust your power in whatever surfaces in our lives, whatever chaos the world uh, is going through, that we can trust your greatness and your love for us that has been plainly seen in the cross of your Son. So help us to rejoice in that tonight and every day of our lives. Do this now. Amen.